0: We raise because we want to move quickly because the market opportunity is huge, but there's also, beyond video conferencing, it's interactions in the real world. When Apple Glass comes out, when Google, I'm sure, is going to come out with a glass product at some point, when Facebook Meta starts to combine the physical world with the digital world and kind of a glass environment. I think you're gonna see more opportunity there within the application. The ability to actually get certain nudges, those types of hints and nudges become incredibly valuable. The future of greed is really around wherever interactions occur, not just in video conferencing.
1: Hey everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product-Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tiama Hansen Drury, Chief Product Officer at MENA Technologies and all around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product, and we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of product, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories.
2: Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Product. I am very happy to have with me today, David Shim. Uh, for those of you who do not know the name, David is the co-founder and CEO at Reed, who is focused on delivering better meeting experiences through a shared dashboard that measures engagement and sentiment in real time. And I have to say, today is one of the coolest For the Love of Podcast uh, interviews to date because the product is actually joining us. So when I'm looking right now, I can see David's face, but I can also see the Read AI um, dashboard as well. Reed's mission is to make every human interaction meaningfully better, smarter and happier, starting with the more than 500 million people that video conference daily. I'm sure that includes you who is listening to this podcast. Prior to Reed, David was the CEO of Foursquare, the location layer of the internet. while at Foursquare the company exceeded 150 million in annual revenue, achieved profitability and acquired its two largest competitors, place and factual, to create the de facto leader in location. David joined Foursquare through Snapchat, which had acquired his first startup, Placed, for more than 175 million in 2019. And that is also where I met David originally. David, thanks for joining us today. Where are you zooming in from?
0: Uh, I'm zooming in from Seattle today.
2: Nice, I love it. My favorite city in the world. I, uh, I have to say we've been we've done. You're our third Seattle founder or product leader that we've interviewed in the last few weeks. The stars of just the line. So it's been oh, great, great. To, to showcase all the amazing innovation and powerhouse business performance that's coming out of that region. So welcome and how's Seattle looking today?
0: Uh Seattle's actually pretty beautiful today. It was raining hard yesterday, but today it's clear skies. It's it's the reason why people move here.
2: Ah, I love it. Well, not too many people. Don't move there. We already have enough people that are moving there. <laughs> so David, um, when you and I first met, which was, you know, years ago, I think it was around 2017 or 2016 or Maybe no, maybe maybe even earlier. But anyway, uh, you were at Place at that time, and I think most of the people who are listening understand what Snapchat is. They certainly understand what Foursquare is. But tell us uh, about Place, just to kind of orient on when we met and what you were doing and what Place's mission was at that point.
0: Yeah, so Place mission really was to measure the physical world and not measure it from the same standpoint of where are businesses, where are mountains, where are rivers. But where are actually visits occurring? So think about it from a website perspective. If you've got Google Analytics on your website, you're looking at how people are traveling to your website, where they're going when they're on the website, and when they leave the website. And all of those things are measured today where if you're a good product person, if you're a good marketing person, you're not launching anything without analytics. Well, when it comes to the physical world itself, there wasn't analytics back in 2011, 12, 13 to say... This is how many people went into a Walmart. This is how many people went into a Best Buy. This is how many people went into a Safeway. And we believed at the time where uh, bringing those analytics out to the forefront would actually drive more actionability where people can action based on how people move in the physical world. And the approach that we took was a little bit different where, uh, and the industry was called location analytics. And the approach that we took was a little bit different in the sense that we built a panel out. So we went out and we said, hey, we know privacy is important. Even back in 2011, when Android had just come out, where iPhone was on version two, we said privacy is key. And if we're going to build a long-standing business, not a short term business, we need to make sure that we can confidently go out and market and say, how did we acquire this data? And the approach that we took was we built a panel. So we took the playbook from Nielsen, from Comscore, and we said, we will pay people if they let us measure where they go in the physical world. And at first, people were like, "Ah, no one's ever going to do that. But for people, it was kind of like, okay, so you're telling me I install this app. You're going to measure me in the background. You're not going to serve me any ads. You're not going to do anything else different. You're just getting location data, and that's it? Absolutely, I'll do that for money. And so what we did was we actually launched that. We started to build iterations from that. So we built an app called Frequent Flyer to get more affluent travelers into the mix. Uh, We built an app called Give to Charity where we made a charitable donation to get a different audience segment. So we really were able to get uh, millions of users opting in to share their location data, which made that even easier for companies to kind of adopt our technology.
1: Clear.
2: So today when Snapchat who is doing by all accounts very well. Uh, I'm an investor in them, and I think that they've done quite well. But at the time that they acquired you, I remember thinking and reading about it in GeekWire, a Seattle publication. And I think think it was a accelerator for their growth, right? They were trying to figure out how they were going to drive more monetization, how they're going to prove the value of advertising on that platform. When you see what Snapchat is doing today, um, is it really clear to you to see like, hey, that was that comes from Placed or that was something that started with Placed a long time ago? Do you see the hallmarks of that original company in how Snapchat acts and succeeds today?
0: We definitely see parts of it. So I think when we spun out to Foursquare, the core place and the core business left, but I like to think we had a residual effect. And I think the residual effect was really understanding that location's hard. It's not just a GPS signal and saying, let me pick the closest business. If you're in Chicago, if you're in London, if you're in any kind of country or city that has tall buildings and you've got a river and a mountain next to you, GPS is really noisy. Then you have to do Wi-Fi. Then you have to do cell phone. Then you have to model it out where it's like, oh, it's two o'clock in the morning. Are they going to be at the star?" or the local pub. So being able to connect those things together, we think we've kind of helped Snapchat get kind of accelerated in that and kind of got them into the advanced class and taught them how to do the math to get them to get more accurate location data. But they've also have an incredible product team even before we came on board where they were building, they were focused in on maps, they were focusing on location and they were partnering with a number of different companies. But we were kind of able to go in and say, hey, with that atomic unit of location, how does that
2: look right from the source? Awesome. So over the last few years, by all accounts, your record looks like a bunch of successes, right? But I think one of the things that anyone who has been brave enough to build a business, right, to found a business on solving a problem or has done the entrepreneurial journey knows that there is very high highs and there's very low lows. Talk to us about some of the things that don't show up on LinkedIn or the things that don't show up on your CV, if you have a CV today, Um, You know, give us a a flavor for what are the trenches you've been in? Because it's super easy to be inspired about the potential, but for people who are considering that entrepreneurial journey, what's the reality of that journey as well?
0: Yeah, I I would say like going back to the startup place back in 2011, I was a single founder. So no other co-founders at the time. Um, I actually tried to get co-founders along the way. Um, The problem was I had a specific vision and the vision that didn't necessarily align with potential co-founders. Like we had conversations, we went pretty deep, but the questions were like, hey, is location really going to be that important? Hey, are people going to kind of get over the hurdle of privacy? And those were all things that I I believe that would be solvable. And I had a a belief that we can solve it and here's some ways that I think we can solve it. But at the same time, it was a hard sell because no one was doing this at the time. So as a sole founder, a lot of it's specifically on you at the end of the day. So when I was a sole founder, I said, okay, I'm gonna take the hit. I'm gonna take zero salary. We raised a $300,000 seed round from Madrona. I actually invested about a third of that round. And the idea was like, I'd love to get one or two engineers to come on board. Um, but the problem is when you, you don't have a track record of success, when you don't have a startup company that you sold previously, it's harder to recruit. Even back in 2011, it's even harder now. I feel, I feel not so bad, but I feel the pain that new founders have right now from a recruiting standpoint to hire your first couple of employees because you're up against the fan companies where they're paying full market salary. They're giving RSUs where they're double the salary amount. Plus there's bonuses, plus there's cash lining bonuses. Like it becomes very difficult for an early stage startup to compete against one of those fan companies and Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Um, so I think from that standpoint, um, I had it a little bit easier, but I only had 300,000. So what I learned during that process was... Uh, whatever I did didn't really matter. I had to resell every single employee over and over again, a prospective employee on the value proposition and the opportunity that was ahead of us. And what I learned early on was like, I wasn't a great seller. Like I took a long time to get to that point. And so what happened was we had a lot of contractors come on board and a lot of those contractors didn't work Out, we had had some junior people come on board and those folks actually worked out really well. But it was kind of an interesting balance to learn like, hey, who's the right fit to come on board early on? Because we probably spent about three to six months just trying to figure out who's the right fit of the first two to three people. Uh, I think the second thing that I learned that was really difficult was your original idea is not going to be right most of the time. So even now, my company Reed, like I've had certain theses along the way and that's changed and that's been in less than a year. Uh, when it came to place, I really believed that there was going to be a Comscore Nielsen for the physical world. So this is the idea that on Black Friday, I can go in and see how many people went into a Best Buy. And then after I see that, I can tell where they went next to understand the order in which people went shopping. And Best Buy was a customer of ours. And they said early on, this is fantastic because this think about back in 2013, uh, there wasn't as much location analytics. And they were like, we have our management team go out to stores all across the U.S. They have a notepad and they write down how many people are in line at their stores and other people go to their competitor locations and write that down. We were able to actually say you can stay home on Black Friday because we are able to measure all that. So they, they love that. And so that was early product market fit. But that was bad product market fit because what we learned was that person had a very specific use case for us. But when we try to sell it everywhere else. The other people didn't have that same problem. So they were interested in it. They're like, Hey, how much does this cost? It's like "No, six figures. We're not going to pay that high five figures. We're not going to pay that. Yeah, maybe we can give you a couple thousand dollars. And at that point, it's kind of like, okay, we're not going to sell for a couple thousand dollars because it costs more than that to even generate the report alone. So for us, the, the learning process there was that location analytics was the right market, big market our first kind of execution of building kind of a reporting platform like Core Nielsen was the wrong play. And we spent probably 24 months on that. And that was me being a first time founder saying like this, I'm right. I believe that I'm correct. We're getting a ton of press too. We were in New York times, wall street journal, USA today, et cetera. So we were getting all the press, but it ultimately said like, Hey, it gave me the bad indication. Like I was getting press, but I wasn't getting customers. I was getting leads, but I wasn't getting people closing on deals. And so what ultimately happened there was complete accident was a bunch of ad networks, like mobile ad networks came to us. And this was when location-based advertising was starting to get big. Like you're within a mile of a Starbucks. Do you want to serve an ad for a competitor? Uh, you're in a mile, you're at half a mile from a Burger King. Does McDonald's want to serve an ad really basic but uh, they were focused on location. And what happened was all of those location players wanted to actually close the loop and say, did this ad drive someone into the store? But they couldn't say that because no one would believe it. So they, they came knocking on the door and said like, hey, David, you've got a great panel. People trust your analytics, it's very accurate. Can you actually bump up your uh, panel against our advertising information and say, did someone see an ad and did they go in the store? And what we found there was, uh, they actually drove conversion. It drove lift. And all of a sudden this business actually said no to for about three to four months. Cause I was like, I don't want to get in the advertising space. I want to be pure play analytics. I don't want to do it. That business ultimately became the reason why Snapchat acquired us. Uh, it generated over $150 million in revenue across the lifetime of the business. It's still generating immense amount of revenue, but it was something where I had never planned before. So I think that was kind of like my original plan did not execute correctly. But the, the market came and said, this is the use case that I want.
2: What was that experience like for you? I mean, you say it now and it sounds very clean and like, okay, cool. This is not working. Okay. Now it's been three to four months and I have realized that maybe I should listen to this and I should change my strategy. But like, what was it like to be you at that time? What were you feeling?
1: It it was
0: tough because the investors had a lot of trust in me when I was doing the Insights product. They were seeing the press. They saw that there was some traction there. There was some meat on the bone there, Uh, but we weren't getting revenue or we weren't getting material revenue. So... And my team who had joined me and these this was like we got the core constituent in place like i consider them all kind of co-founders at the end of the day where we were working incredibly hard to get the product out and it failed so i felt really bad that you know my product wasn't working so what i did was and this is a common mistake for people who even invest where it's like you buy a bad stock and it starts to go down you, you put more money into it it's, it's called good money chasing bad and so If you're a founder and you're a product person, sometimes you do that because I've invested so much. I want to save this thing. I think there's value here. And what I should have done was I should have kind of grandfathered it very quickly because we didn't have a lot of customers, but I kept it running. So it still took up, even as placed attribution was getting traction, uh, I still spent probably like 25% to 50% of my time on placed insights until it came to the point where it it said, okay, placed attribution, the ad to in-store visit is the core product. And at that point... I really had to make that shift mentally to say like, you know what? I'm wrong. It's okay. I'm, I'm blessed that we found a product that people are it's selling itself. It's doing incredibly well. People find great value out of it. And it doesn't matter if it's my idea or not. Like at the end of the day, the company's doing really well. So I should be happy and build against that.
1: How did you
2: handle communicating that change towards right a place to attribution? Right. Um, Opposed from the insights piece, like how did you communicate that to your employees and what was that process like? So I I kept it as
0: transparent as possible. So throughout the process with Placed Insights, I would talk about all the meetings I went to, all the interests that we had. And at first it was very much a strong curve up, but as the investors started to ask questions like, Hey, when is this going to generate more revenue? When are you going to see a higher close rate? I started to communicate that to the team. And the reason why I did that was we were a small group. I think about a dozen people And I wanted to be as transparent as possible so people understood why we were working so hard because we need to find product market fit. Hey, why do we need to get this feature out? We need to get this feature out to see if we have product market fit. And so, as people understood the reasons why we were staying late, working over the weekends, uh, they started to understand okay, I get why we're doing this, and I think this is a reasonable trade off. So that's fine. When we ultimately decided to grandfather Placed Insights, it was so obvious that Placed Attribution was the winner because we were transparent on that. We, we had a chart that showed uh, how many people logged into Placed Insights and utilized it. And then we had a chart of how many impressions that we measured uh, through Placed Attribution. And it was just obnoxious. It was like you'd have like a dozen people that logged into the Insights platform and you had like a billion impressions on the right-hand side. We're like, okay, this, this right, product market fit is on the right-hand side. It's not on the left-hand side.
2: Got it. Okay, perfect. So when you think back to that difficulty in finding a co-founder, right? So saying that people just couldn't wrap their head around that location was important and that you'd be able to overcome the privacy hurdle, that's one side of the coin. And then the other side of the coin is needing to be flexible enough to lay down placed, you know, insights and pick up placed attribution, where's the middle ground of sticking to your guns and what you believe in your vision versus being flexible to how your vision actually comes to life, reaches product market fit, any guidance for people who are kind of waffling in between that stage of, no, I don't want to let go of that vision. That is why I started this company. And, oh man, the data really seems to be suggesting the way that this is, you know, productized is maybe different than I experienced expected.
0: Yeah. I I think it's two things. So one is I talked about the shift. Like I don't think placed insights was wrong necessarily in the sense of it wasn't a bad decision to build it. It's how much time I spent after the fact where I tested out in a market. So it should have been probably closer to 12 to 18 months versus 24 to 36 type month period. So I think in that aspect, it was important to kind of put a clock on it to say how much time am I going to give myself to actually execute uh, with the current product market fit that I, I think is there. I think that's one step. And for, for me, it's also like making sure you release some of that ego and Understand like the success of one idea doesn't matter if you're able to kind of go in and pivot it to something else. Like if you think about Justin TV, Justin TV, people, very few people remember that as a live streaming company that ultimately became Twitch. So same concept, it was live streaming, but the execution was like live streaming and I'm walking around the physical world and everyone can follow me versus like Twitch has some of that component, but it's more about live streaming. uh, Actually, when you're playing video games, when you're watching a movie, when you're doing something where you're on the computer and you're interacting with your fans. So I think that was a pivot that worked really well, but it was in the same space. Same thing goes for Slack. Slack was communicating inside a video game. Now Slack is B2B, it's enterprise, it's consumer. It's all of those things where it's a communication platform. So I think when you combine all with those things together, the core foundation, you you built a foundation. And I think that's important. Whatever pivot that you do is to make sure that, hey, is your foundation actually good? So if our location analytics was not accurate, you'd be like, okay, I should totally pivot to something completely different because it's too hard. This is not successful. But if you've got a strong foundation where the market is big, I think at that point, it's more about pivoting to the right product market fit and giving yourself enough shots on goal that you could actually make one of those work. Because I think you've got, if you have the right kind of landscape or li- right market or category that you're going after, it really is how do you kind of fit the right product for the consumer? It's I, I think that's really the challenge in a lot of cases. It's not the fundamental, like, is location analytics important? Is live streaming important? Is metaverse important? Like all of those things, like the answer is probably yes. And the question is more about how is that going to be kind of targeted towards? How is that execution on the consumer side on the B2B side going to be?
2: Who do you think from a counterpart perspective, um, you know, you said early, earlier that many of the early employees at Place you see as co-founders, right? But who have been the most important voices in the room to help you as a leader kind of make that evolution or in certain cases, pivot?
0: yeah, I'd say the invest Matt McElwain, uh, he was on our board of directors. He was an early supporter of ours. like I would say he's an incredible kind of he's at Madrona. he is at Madrona and he's on the board of directors of Reed now as well. And so uh, I think he was an incredible supporter because what he was able to do is kind of take all his experience and knowledge and kind of nudge different ways. So not direct, but nudge to say, hey, it's been six months. It's been 12 months. You don't have traction yet on this. It's 18. David, you should really probably start to try something else, but it gives you enough leeway that you're able to try things out, but enough direction to say, okay, kind of go that way a little bit, move a little bit to the right. And I think that Matt's been phenomenal from that standpoint. Um, So I'd say that's that's one. I would say two is like competitors to be upfront. Like sometimes people say, don't look at your competitors at all. Ultimately, I merged with all my competitors, like Foursquare, Factual, and Place, we all merged together. So at the end of the day, um, they kind of helped dictate how we kind of tackle different things. So I think that's incredibly important to go in and say like, hey, you can learn from your competitors. You You don't necessarily need to follow them. And I think what ultimately happened with the location space was Foursquare did point of interest, And they really dominated that space. Plus they did SDK, which was enabling other apps to utilize location data. Place did attribution incredibly well. We were able to measure ad exposure to store visit across a number of different partners like Pandora, uh, Spotify, um, et cetera. And then you had uh, Factual, which did targeting really well. So when you brought all those things together, it really did create the best of both worlds. Like I, I call it like Voltron, where it's like you had the three pieces come together to create this bigger entity that was really kind of is the dominant player in the space.
2: You were leading the company when you guys did the acquisition and um, eventual roll up of all three, right? Was that your vision coming in, uh, like when you came in through through the Snapchat um, acquisition? Did you see that as your vision was that something that you came after coming in and kind of assessing what was behind the hood like how did that process come together to say we're going to do a roll-up to provide this comprehensive across all three pieces pillars of the value when it comes to location-based data like when did that come about
0: yeah so that was always kind of
2: in the in the minds of everybody in the space where we
0: were kind of like hey for somehow each company had their own specific industry that they were leading in. So we we had high level conversations all the time and we'd always try to go into each other's markets and we would have some success on each side, but the incumbent was really winning and pulling away at the end of the day. Uh, When Snap acquired place in 2017, uh, what happened there was Snap had this idea of like building this uh, stack really that's privacy focused, but enables attribution, enables analytics. And you're kind of seeing that today with iOS 14 and 15 with attribution being a lot more difficult with privacy like that. They, they were already thinking about that, you know, two, three, four years ago. So as we were going down that spot, um, there was an idea of like, how do we bring together more companies to really bring this privacy safe ad technology platform? And what happened during that time was uh, and this is all public, but Snapchat had some problems. The redesign occurred. Uh, the stock went from like the high teens and 20s to as low as five dollars a share. And during yeah, and during that time is it it's very difficult. And we we're and placed was a part of Snapchat at the time there. And what we learned from that experience was really they took a step back and they said, we need to focus in on the core product. And the core product was Snap. Like that, but hands down, like placed, I didn't have any aspirations that we were going to be bigger than Snap. We're going to be 50% of the revenue. We were a key critical part. Location, if you think about Snaps, uh, when you take a Snap, it's typically out and about in the physical world. You're not inside your house, taking a Snapchat of you watching TV. It's out when you're out at a bar, you're at a restaurant, you're at a concert, you're at a fair, you're at the park, you're walking your dog. That's where you're using Snapchat. So location is a key component, but the app itself uh, with the redesign, there was things that needed being improved and so they ultimately kind of refocused in on that and that was the ultimately the right decision because the stock went from five dollars to almost eighty dollars recently and now back to around sixty dollars so i think that was absolutely the right decision to do but it also required focus and this goes back to what we talked a little bit about earlier like hey what's the focus what's the product market fit you're going after and during that time in 2019 uh Fourscore came along and said hey, we just raised a really large amount of funding, over a hundred million dollars, and we're interested in consolidating the space. Snapchat, you've got this great asset that's still the number one player in attribution. We would love to talk about uh, potentially combining the two companies together. And to Snapchat's credit, they were very founder friendly. They, They came to me and said, hey, we've got this interest, Do you want to have a conversation? Yes or no? No pressure at all. We would prefer to keep you on board. You're doing incredibly well. You're growing, even though we're not giving you as much focus as we would have liked because we're focusing on the core product. uh, You're doing incredibly well, but we want to be be fair to you and actually say this person is interested. We think it would be an ultimately a good financial outcome for us as well. Uh, Do you want to spin this out? And so as I started to talk with Foursquare, uh, the answer became very clear. Yeah, yes, our team was focusing around location to have a hundred million dollars plus to have two of the leaders in the space combined made total sense. And then um, three months into it, I became CEO of the combined company. And during that time, uh, again, this is where we were very friendly with your competitors, Factual. And I had a conversation where we said, Hey, we've got two out of the three leaders in the space. Why don't we just make it three out of three and stop fighting each other? Like there's a huge opportunity here to really deliver a best in class product. And it's not to say that um, there weren't other competitors in space. There's a ton of competitors. There's hundreds of competitors in the location space, but these were kind of the leaders in the space that had the best technology that had the best market share, that it made sense to combine those things together. And for us, that was a win. And so when we combine those three companies together, uh, well, it's a long story, but essentially when we combined the three companies together, we were able to go in and get a level of efficiency that we did that right before COVID. So this was in Q1 of 2020. So right before COVID, we had merged all three companies together. Um, that led, And there, they, there were some hard cuts that we had to do as part of the merger because there's three location companies, there's some redundancies, um, and those were hard decisions. But after that, when COVID went kind of full bore, We were actually, we didn't do any layoffs because we had been able to kind of grow the business, make it more efficient, et cetera, where for a period of, you know, all of COVID, we had no layoffs. We actually started growing near the end of COVID um, or sorry, not the end. COVID is still going on at the time of this call, but near, near when it slowed down a little bit more. So I think for us, it was all the right decision. But again, it was, there were little early indications, but it wasn't something that I had the broad vision on day one to say, let me bring all these things together. Day one, I wanted to build it all myself. And so you just have to be nimble and flexible in terms of how you execute there.
2: Yeah, I think that's a huge lesson for people, right? Um, because that buy build partner strategy more and more, uh, we're seeing very successful outcomes through partnership and M&A. Um, but I think it's very difficult, as you mentioned, right? Culturally, it's very difficult beyond just layoffs and redundancies. Uh, that cultural piece is important. Before we move on to the next stage, any anything that you learned in terms of the cultural aspect to bringing three companies together like that, that would change how you would do it again in the future or pretty common like to be expected stuff?
0: No, you, you, I would say a couple of warnings from that was you make the hard decisions then. So don't kick anything down the street. So right after placed and forced board combined, um, we left a, hard deci- a couple of hard decisions we waited on. We said like, hey, let's see if this works out or not. Um, and we all knew like ultimately like the probability was like it wasn't gonna work out. and So we, we should have made the decision earlier. But we didn't. And so in those instances, like when you're making a hard decision, don't rip the bandaid halfway, rip it all the way off because you're just going to pay for it later where it's like, oh, okay, now I have to rip it again. And it hurts even more because something else happened. You really need to focus in on like why you're doing this and make those decisions and be confident. And there's going to be kind of negative backlash in a lot of cases. People are going to ask, why did these two companies merge? Why are there layoffs? What's going on here? And the story spoke for itself. The numbers proved out, the growth returned, all these things happened. But at the same time, just rip that bandaid off versus doing it subtly. And then with Factual, we took some of those learnings from the first merger and we said, hey, let's go in with that same kind of concept, but let's learn from those mistakes. And that was a huge win for both companies when we combined.
2: Fantastic. Okay. So that takes us into, as you say, like 2020 timeframe. What was the reason why you decided, hey, uh, I want to do something different. I want to focus on read. I mean, I can see some of the reasons why your skill set translates actually quite well to uh, what you're doing today. But first of all, what was the driver for you personally? And then second of all, why is it maybe not as big of a jump to think of going from ad tech into, I guess, meeting analytics, right? Um, walk me through both of those things.
0: Yeah. So, uh, leaving force work, hard decision because it was kind of, It was my goal overall to like build the winner in the location space. And I think Foursquare very clearly is the winner in the location space today. So that was something where it was hard to walk away from. Uh, We had built something that was profitable, that was growing from a revenue perspective and all those things were great. And it's going to go public in the next couple of years, if not sooner, um, the way that the growth is. So for me, the question was more like, hey, do I see myself as wanting to be a public market IPO CEO? And I think that's a great thing to do, but that's not in my aspirations to say like, that's my one goal. If I want to be a publicly traded company CEO, that's a win for me, I'm done. Uh, For me, it just kind of like it's another step in the process. But when you become CEO of a publicly traded company, you have to kind of stick around a lot longer. They want to see you in there. And for me, I'd been in the location space for 11 years. I was kind of ready for something else. I was ready for the next thing, but I wanted to make sure kind of my baby was in a good spot. And when I left, I felt that it was in a fantastic spot. I left it better than it was before. And I was comfortable in making that move. Uh, fast forward to when I left Foursquare in December, 2020, uh, the plan was to take a you know almost a year off. And what happened was, I was, I was in Mexico, I was, was still high, high COVID, so there wasn't many places you can go, but I went to Mexico a couple of times. And as I started to look at different opportunities and different ideas, I was just reading a bunch of papers. And the great part about that is like, if something interests you, uh, you can go in and look at a paper, read the paper, uh, go on YouTube and just reach out to the people that wrote the paper too. And so I was able to get a number of responses to different papers that I was interested in. One was around kind of meetings and how to make meetings more efficient, because what really reminded me of a place in the early days with location analytics, even more so like just the app stores was Uh, COVID drove the acceleration, the hyper-acceleration of video conferencing. We were doing tens of millions of daily active users uh, pre-COVID. So let's assume 30 to 40 million daily active users pre-COVID on Zoom, WebEx, Google Meet, and Teams. Fast forward to today, there's a half a billion people using those four platforms every single day. So if you think about that hockey stick, in less than two years, you went from 30 million to half a billion. That's faster than iOS. That's faster than Android. That's faster than almost any platform ever to see that level of growth and that level of adoption. And it's not just adoption where it's like, oh, I've used this like once a week or once a month. This is every single day that people are utilizing it. They're using it for multiple hours a day. So that got me interested, especially from a product perspective, that got me interested to say, okay, from a product perspective, video conferencing is actually a really big market. You're talking about half a billion people using it. Let's say let's say they only use it for an hour a day. That's half a billion hours. You assume of those half a billion dollars, let's say that it's only worth $10 in terms of employee time or personal time. That's $5 billion a day that's used against meetings. And that's being really conservative, but every single day it's $5 billion. And so from that aspect, I said, okay, that's a big market. Now what's a problem with video conferencing? And there's a lot of things around the platforms where they're like, Zoom is always going to get better. WebEx is always going to get better. Teams is going to get better. They're going to have more features. But there are certain things that they won't do. Just like uh, Google didn't do certain things in the space. iOS didn't do certain things. Apple didn't do certain things because they're focusing on the core product and they want to build a platform. And what you're seeing now is that Zoom, uh, WebEx, Microsoft, even t- uh, Google Meet, they're actually building out platforms because they see the number of users on these on these solutions today. So they want people to build on top of. And so that got me really interested. Okay, they're opening up things. They're making it possible to add applications on top of a video conference. And then what are the pain points around video conferencing? Half of all meetings are unproductive. They, they just don't matter. They're not great. You should, you. I think there's commonality where you say like, hey, should I even be in this meeting? And you know when you shouldn't be in the meeting, then your eyes start darting on the screen because you're looking at the web. Maybe you turn off your camera. Maybe you go on mute. All of those things come into play. And the reason why I believe that virtual meetings are so bad, that half of them are bad, is because one, we haven't necessarily learned how, we haven't learned the kind of tribal knowledge of how to interact with one another through video conferencing, because it's so new. We've had hundreds of thousands of years as humans to actually interact with one another. We've had phone calls where we've had hundreds of years to interact with each other. Uh, we've had you know uh, email for decades, Yeah. Video conferencing is just so new. So it's like everyone's still learning. And especially with like meeting invites being so easy to send, I send anyone an invite, 99% of the time they're going to accept because they're just like, okay, I should accept. I got invited to this meeting. Well, they don't ask the question, should I really be there? Is this, am I going to be valuable? And so for me, I was like, okay, all these things combined, there's an opportunity there to make it more efficient, to make it more productive, to make it just better.
2: I sent you a meme this week. I don't know if you saw it, but I saw it and I was like, Oh my God, this is funny. It was I like, it. did you see it's basically like there should be a button in all meetings that if everybody hits it and nobody knows they're hitting it, then the meeting just ends immediately. immediately. Um, And I think we've all felt that way, right? Because you're just like, oh my Lord, like, why am I in this meeting? It's just languishing. So for those of us who don't know what Reed's first product is, walk us through it. Like, what is it? What's the ultimate reason it exists? How does it solve that half of people are, or half of meetings are unproductive? Like, Give us a quick sales pitch on it.
0: Yeah. So, Read is really a in meeting analytics dashboard. So, now that that's the technical term, people are like, what does that mean? In meeting analytics dashboard. So, imagine driving a car today and you drive a car without a dashboard and you've driven a car without a dashboard for 10, 15 years. All of a sudden, the dashboard appears and you've got all these things like speedometer, fuel odometer, et cetera. You're like, what is going on here? I don't understand what is going on. But as you start to use it more and more, you start to understand, oh, okay, I get it. This is showing me how fast I'm going. This is, oh, whenever I rev the engine too hard, it's showing me the horsepower that I'm utilizing. Oh, this light, when it turns on, that means I'm low on gas. And the goal here is that people are driving less than they are in video conferencing now. So if there's a dashboard for when you drive, we believe that there has to be a dashboard for when you meet. And so what read dashboard is our first product. The idea here is that we are able to go in and tell you, how's the call going? That, that that's really at the end of the day, how is the call going? Not just from your standpoint, because uh, there's been a number of studies, like if you host a meeting, you think majority of the time the meeting was incredibly productive, it went well, etc. But it's less than 50% of people who attend many meetings thinks it's productive. So all of a sudden, it's like, there's this bias here. And so with that bias, you want to be able to capture that and you want to be able to understand, oh, officer, I thought I was going 60 miles per hour, but the speedometer says you're going 90. You want to be able to know that so you don't get that speeding ticket. So what Reed is here to do is actually establish the baseline. And our first product, Reed Dashboard, which is available for Zoom and WebEx and to Zoom do, uh, the other four platforms is to go in and say like, hey, this is a free application, install it. And what we're able to do is join in on the meeting and we'll start off by just showing you talk time. So who's talking the most? who's talking the least. Then we'll start to go into more advanced metrics like uh, meeting score. So how's the meeting going overall? So is it going good, average, or bad? Just, just really basic, just saying like, okay, this call is going well, It's not going well? Because sometimes you might be in a presentation where you've got a laptop that's 14 inches, 13 of those inches is the presentation that you're going through. You've got small little boxes for four out of the 14 people on the call. It's hard to read the room. So the idea here is like, we can give you a temperature of how the call is going. Then we break it down based on sentiment as well as engagement. So what's the feeling? So as you present, as you're talking, uh, are people excited? Are they happy? Or are they sad, disappointed, angry? And really being able to capture that in real time. Uh, the same thing for sentiment. Like are people actually paying attention? Are they looking at the screen? Or are they looking away? Are they on their phones? Are they doing something else? And you're not gravitating, you're not closing that loop there. And so for, for those three things, meeting scores, sentiment, and engagement, we wanted to show that in real time. And we wanted to really kind of establish a Rand McNally. So if you think about it from, I'm gonna go to a mapping example. We're setting the base, we're Rand McNally. We've identified the rivers, the mountains, the streets, the buildings, et cetera. That's what read dashboard is. Future iterations of read dashboard will go in and actually say, hey, let me give you a nudge. So not tell you what to do because we're not about AI taking over the world. It's more about ways where, hey, you're driving down the street. If you wanna make a right turn here, you'll save four minutes. So it's your call. And if we give that nudge and say, hey, people are kind of losing attention while you're talking about the methodology of the product, you should probably go to the next slide or you're gonna lose people. You wanna know that. And the thing with Waze is no one gets angry at Waze because Waze goes in and says, hey, you should make a turn here, but it's your choice. But we think you'll save some time to make a right turn here. Versus like, if someone tells you that's next to you in the, in the passenger seat or behind you, and they say, hey, you make a right turn, go right now. Are like, leave me alone, like I'm driving, stop backseat driving. It's a negative connotation. I think the same thing happens with meetings where if someone tells you like, hey, that meeting was really bad, like that was not good. You take personal offense and you get defensive about that. Versus if an analytics solution tells you, like, hey, it wasn't a great meeting, you're like, ah, you know what? That that's probably right. Like, I know where I screwed up here. I see where the dip occurred, and it's when I was starting to talk about methodology. So, you know what? I'm gonna try to mix it up next time around, or even try to pay more attention to the analytics and try to make adjustments in real time.
2: I love it. I mean, one of the things that uh, I'm super passionate about is diversity and inclusion. And I think, you know, one of the things we know is oftentimes um, the loudest voice in the room dominates. Right. And the people who tend to not have the loudest voice are people who are more historically disadvantaged oftentimes. I could see this being really interesting for people who are trying to ensure there's equal opportunity for voices at the table as well. Um, am I thinking too far ahead? Does that seem like something that you could see you guys tackling, or, or, or what? What are your thoughts on that?
0: No, hundred percent. I think from a use case perspective, one of the reasons why we made read dashboard free was we wanted to open it up to anyone who wanted to use it to figure out product market fit. So this is kind of taking the learnings from place to say, rather than me saying, I know exactly what the market wants, I'm going to put all the ingredients out there, the numbers out there, and then people can figure out the use cases. And based on those use cases, as we start to get more feedback, we're going to narrow it down and customize the product for those use cases. But absolutely. I think from a DEI perspective, A lot of people don't know when they ramble on. A lot of people don't notice when they only call on a specific gender or a specific race. And the ability to identify that most, I like to believe like 99.9% of people want to do the right thing. And they just need a little nudge. They need that information to know. And you need to do it in a way that doesn't get that person defensive. But it's just going in and saying, look, here's the data. This is an absolute fact you've called on men more than you have women or women only talk 10% of the time, or this specific minority group is not speaking at all in these conversations. How do you bring them back in? And I think that's an important metric to actually utilize and measure to make sure that every voice is heard. So I I, I totally 100% agree with you. And we're seeing that from an HR perspective. We're seeing it from even a recruiting perspective where some of the conversations people are starting to use read during a conversation where they're interviewing to make sure like, hey, how's the candidate experience? Like, is the candidate experience good or bad? And are certain interviewers where you see the score and it actually has a low interview score, they might come back and say like, hey, this is the score, your last four calls were like this. Like, maybe we should talk about how you're interviewing people and what you're saying because we're seeing some kind of skew here. And really the data doesn't lie. And and when you have the data, it makes those conversations so much easier to have versus going in and saying like, hey, you know, I heard anecdotally X, Y, and Z. Or like, hey, one customer told me this and I used to do that. Like, this is going in and actually making it a data-driven approach when it comes to interactions.
2: Yeah, I mean, having spoken to lots of people who have actually told me, God, the hiring experience was so terrible. It was a red flag right away. And I always think in those moments, man, I wish that company knew that that interviewer was out there, like, putting that face to the brand because you would want to stop that. Uh, so... I love that. In some of the ways that you're describing it, it almost has a a gong-esque kind of sound to it. Um, Are you familiar with like the gong, like sales and rev ops intelligence uh, kind of product?
0: Absolutely. And they've got some great products in their market.
2: Yeah, because it sounds, I mean, one of the things you said there that I think has made it really fantastic to see that solution take off has been the data doesn't lie, right? And it's so helpful to be able to go in and cut through hearsay, cut through he said, she said, and actually see the real data. So I think um, it's really cool to hear what you guys are thinking. Uh, You mentioned something earlier about one of the things that you've done with Reed that was influenced by, you know, your previous experiences, right? Going out, let the solution be available, freemium model or free, at least entirely model right now, and then let the reaction tell you about the use cases. Any other lessons or things that when you decided you were going to do this, you came out of Mexico, decided, all right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump back in a lot faster than I expected, that you were like, I'm going to do this differently. This is something I want to really, I want to approach with newfound knowledge from my past experience.
0: Yeah, I'd say some things that the same and different or some learnings that I had from the past was one is like privacy. Privacy was important at place. Uh, privacy was critical at Snapchat with the disappearing snaps. Uh, we've taken the same approach at read now because there is a question around like, Hey, you're measuring my calls. You're reading my emotion. You're reading my sentiment. what, what... is that big brother? What's gonna happen with the data? Are you gonna replay this? And am I gonna be embarrassed? Is it gonna be really authentic conversations? So we wanted to cut that really kind of short, that conversation short. And the way that we're doing that is we're actually deleting the data automatically within 24 hours. So the metadata is there, was it a good call or bad call? But video audio data is automatically deleted within 24 hours. We're actually pushing our technology stack to do it even faster, to do it in real time, essentially, as the conversation gets scored, get rid of the audio and video data and that's gonna happen uh, down the road. But really for us, it was important to go in and say, hey, from a privacy standpoint, let's make sure and be clear with everyone. The data is not used for playback. And that's where it's a little bit different from a gong or outreach of those other companies. So that's that was one learning that I brought back. One other one was like waiting to have the perfect product before it goes out in the market. Uh, placed insights, I did this <laughs> a lot. And so it was like waiting for the perfect product. What we did was we actually said like, let's release the product, um, not a hundred percent, but let's get it out there. Let's get the feedback, both good and bad. We know the things that we need to fix. But last time it placed, I spent too much time in a silo and not out in market. So I was able to take the data. I was able to create stories and white papers but I wasn't letting people get direct access to it. And that's what you need to do. You need to have people have direct access because if they're gonna buy the solution, if they're gonna use it in every meeting, it's incredibly important for that person to um, actually be able to like use it and touch it and figure out what that value proposition. is. as a product person, that's incredibly valuable too because I can assume certain things are kind of gonna happen. But at the end of the day, like, I don't know for sure. I need to know it at scale and my biases, I might not even be aware of them. My biases will come into play. So it's like, it was really important to launch a lot faster than we would have in the past. That was a quick learning from my side as well. So those were all kind of key factors for us.
2: Cool. Um, one of the things anyone who's been following Reed or you will see is that you guys hit the ground running big time. I mean, you guys announced your funding, your, your, uh, 10 million round from Madrona. And it's just been like, read, 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 read. Like there's been a ton of press pickup, a ton of response. Um, having launched free products before, I think that's a really important piece because otherwise people don't know your products there. How did you guys go into planning that strategy about how to drive awareness so that you would drive usage so you could learn from the, that usage?
0: Yeah. So there's a couple fronts. So from the fundraising standpoint, um, we could have raised a smaller round. We could have kind of, kind of kind of bootstrapped it. But one thing I learned at Placed was at Placed, we raised $13 million in total. The last round was a $10 million round back in 2015 or so, I, I believe, or 16. Um, we never spent that $10 million because we were profitable. So we were actually profitable for the last seven or eight years. So where I think I made a mistake personally was when the location space was really early, I should have spent more aggressively because I could have closed out the attribution side. And then theoretically, I could have gone up against Foursquare or Factual and actually built a product that was competitive and pulled away because I had kind of the tailwinds for my thing where I, I had the market share, I had the money, but I was too conservative. I was focusing on profitability. So, one thing around the fundraising for the $10 million seed round, which is a larger seed round, was really to go in and say, let's hit the ground running. This is a big market. We believe that interactions can be better when it comes to video conferencing. So do you believe that thesis? Yes. Okay. If that's, a, that's an opportunity there, is the market really big? Half a billion people every single day. Okay, so can we make meetings better for half a billion people? Is that a big company? Absolutely. So we started going to go and say, let's build a team quickly. Let's go higher. Let's make sure we get, we don't go in and try to do what I did before, where it's like a bunch of contractors and try to scrimp and save until you get product market fit. Let's go after the best people in market. And that's what we were able to do was bring in kind of like this uh, incredible talent on board that we were able to scale out the business. Uh, so that, that was one on the fly fundraising side. Um, I think Two from a business standpoint and learning and iterating and moving very quickly was uh, we, to your exact point, like we launched in September when we announced the fundraise, we had raised the money in the late summer. Um, we had been working on the product since the summer. And as we started to kind of get more traction and fit, we, we started to hire quickly And then we started iterating, we started to get beta users really early on and we got feedback and some of it was really positive, some of it was really negative. And then we had opportunities to partner with Zoom and Webex. We launched in their app stores and we were one of the first apps because we were so nimble. Like this is an opportunity where it's like, there's these legacy companies that got invited. We were also invited. And we're like, oh, we can move a lot faster than a lot of these players because we're a smaller team. We don't have legacy tech, so we can build on top of existing platforms very quickly. And so that was kind of a big win from an adoption standpoint as well. And so and then all the press that we got was like, it's a really interesting problem. Like interactions are hard and interactions on the virtual platform are even harder. And so how do we make that easier for us? Because there's this um, there's a study out where it's like, hey, You and I are looking at one each other on Zoom right now. And if you look at someone this close on a regular basis in the in the physical world, human nature says you're either trying to date that person or you're trying to fight that person. So imagine doing that for like seven or eight hours a day where you've got all these people this close to your face, like less than like five or 10 inches from your face. That starts to stress you out. You might not know why you're stressed out but it's your animalistic nature saying like, this is stressful. I, do I run away? Do I talk? Do I flirt? What is going on? And so in that aspect, uh, technology can make those conversations so much better. They can make them more productive. They can kind of put you at ease knowing that someone's kind of watching your back and helping you kind of guide you through the right process. So that's important. Um, and then I'll just kind of go, the longer term vision too is, We we raise because we want to move quickly because the market opportunity is huge. But there's also beyond video conferencing, it's interactions in the real world. So when Google Glass, or sorry, when Apple Glass comes out, when Google, I'm sure, is going to come out with a glass product at some point, when Facebook Meta starts to combine the physical world with the digital world and kind of a glass environment, I think you're going to see more opportunity there within the applications where, hey, if you and I are interacting, the ability to actually get certain nudges to go in and say, like, David, you've been talking for 14 minutes straight, like, probably should ask a question or, Hey, David, you keep looking away. You seem distracted. You're not answering. You're not responding Like those types of hints and nudges become incredibly valuable. And I think when the future of read is really around wherever interactions occur, not just in video
2: conferencing. I love it. Um, Okay. Last three questions for you. Uh, First, uh, go-to-market strategy and going free to begin with, did investors give you uh, a hard time on that at all? Were they, I mean, it's a very, it's becoming a much more common strategy, right? To launch, get the usage and then monetize it later. But was that at all a stumbling block for you when you said, I want to go free or were people pretty supportive of it?
0: They were very supportive. And the reason why the market is so big. So if we were going after a specific niche audience segment and we said like, hey, we think the licenses are gonna be $100,000, $200,000. This is really a bottoms up strategy where we're going out, we wanna make it free. Uh, we want people because education is our biggest challenge right now like hey do i need a dashboard like i've had meetings for 18 months like i don't have a dashboard now why do i need a dashboard and so education would be very expensive for us but if we make it free if we make it easily accessible the education barrier is eliminated so just like with zoom like people were into video conferencing they had webex they had teams they had a little bit of google meet as well but it wasn't getting much traction zoom came along and said hey completely free And we've got this client, you utilize it. And if you hit a certain limit in time, then we're gonna start charging you for it. But you can still use it for free every single day for about 40 minutes. So people got a way to kind of taste test video conferencing. And then as the certain group, some, I'd say about probably like 89, Zoom knows it's better than 90, but I would imagine like 80 to 90% of Zoom users don't pay for licenses. But it's that group, that 10 to 20% that is spending that money. And I think that was the right play. And I think we're in the same area. We're not trying to go after 100,000 users. We're trying to go after tens of millions, hundreds of millions of users. We want to aspirationally be in every meeting, just like in every car, there's a dashboard. We want to be in every single meeting. I think with that play and that aspiration, you have to be aggressive on the education side and being free today is going to pay immense benefits down the road.
2: Love it. Okay. Next two questions. Um, Reed has been joining us this whole time. Can we go check in and see what uh, Reed tells us about our meeting? Have I been blabbing too much? I hope not. No, no,
0: not at all. So if you open up the browser there, what you're seeing is the active read score, and that's going to change the meeting score. And the reason why we're changing it to meeting score is we got feedback from customers. They said, hey, what is active read? I don't understand what that is. And so we wanted to be a little bit more cautious when it came to kind of the terminology, because we didn't want to make it feel like it's a game where it's competitive to say one person is doing better than the other. So we we went to generic and we called it active read, where it was like, hey, people should get a feeling of how the active call is going. Uh, That was a learning. And this is where it's like, we learned very quickly. That's why we launched. And so we're changing it to meeting score because people are like, oh, meeting score. How's the meeting going? It's a score. I totally get it. That's totally fine. I think from a sentiment perspective, uh, that's working well. So if you look at the sentiment score, it's showing the green. And what that green represents is like points where we were above the fold. So certain points, they go a little bit lower. It's an average call because you can't be happy the entire call generally. Uh, But you can start to see it moving around. Uh, And then you got engagement to go and say, what's the level of engagement? Are we looking at the screen? Are we paying attention? And you can see engagement was mostly green throughout the entirety of the call. So all of those things combined really say like, hey, this was a very solid, this is a good call. This was a good, I'd, I'd rate this as a good call. Um, but where you get the benefit a lot of times is when it's a bad call. That's that's where it's the most important. Like generally, I think um, good calls are easier to recognize. Everyone's smiling, it's going well, you're laughing, et cetera. Good calls are harder to recognize in bigger groups. One-on-one, it's easier, but bigger groups it's much harder to do. And we're seeing that from a lot of our customers where they're saying like, hey, For the internal team meetings where it's 20, 30, 40 people within a company, a lot of the times executives misread when they're presenting. They think the audience is loving it. They think they're super interested in it, but they're confused. They're distracted. They don't understand. And they want that feedback loop in real time because uh, when 30 or 40 people leave a meeting frustrated, that has downstream repercussions versus like 30 to 40 people are frustrated in minute one, but in minute 1.5, you're able to say, hey, Are there any questions from the audience? I think I might've been a little bit too complex in the way I described it or a little confusing. So I wanna make sure everyone understands what I'm saying here. Uh, So please let me know if you have any questions. That can immediately solve it. So what you take is like something that would have taken like 30 seconds to solve in real time using read might take another meeting with 40 people to explain it all over again. So we're aiming to solve that problem at the end of the day.
2: I wanna read badge, David. (laughs) I wanna read badge that says, I'm one of the best meeting holders at my company. You tell me when that's coming. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that is that is very uh that is that is a very good idea. And we we've talked about this a little bit to go in and say, like, do you actually make it fun to say who's the best speaker, who has the best meaning? So not not calling out who's doing badly, but it's really more like the four-square badge in a lot of ways. Yeah, I or want a badge. All right.
2: I want a badge. Bring me a badge. Okay. Last question. Um, and we ask everyone on the show this, and it's my favorite question. So, say there was a museum that I would visit all the time. First of all, but say there was a museum dedicated to the world's most important products. Right. This doesn't mean it has to be the most successful product, um, but it has to be important. What would you say should be in that museum, and why?
0: I mean the the, the modern answer that I'd say is most obvious is the smartphone. I think the smartphone has changed everything to have a computer in your pocket. Like if you look at Star Trek, like if you think about the, the the little handheld thing they had in Star Trek, that really is the smartphone right now. It can translate things in real time. It can do multiple things. It's more powerful than any computer that we had five or 10 years ago. Like. I think that has changed the way that people communicate and travel. I think it's also somewhat negative too. I think it's not a museum of like, this is all great things. I think the level of distraction that is occurring now, the level of like, and I have this and I have to catch myself sometimes. Like I just have my phone in my hand all the time. And if I'm not, I'm not enjoying the moment sometimes. I feel like sometimes I need to share when I don't need to. I should just enjoy the moment. So I think it's both a museum of like, this is incredible in terms of what the smartphone has done. But it's also like here, the, it's early days, but here are the things that are causing issues. And are these going to be solved in the near term? Or are these going to be bigger, more systematic issues? Like, is there the couch potato version of the smartphone? But is it going to get worse than that? And I think that's going to be really interesting.
2: <laughs> that's, that brings funny, funny vision still uh, uh, to mind. Awesome. Okay, so the smartphone is your bet. That's what you would put in the in the museum. Yes, that, that would
0: be. And, it, and I, I think the other thing about the smartphone is, in the first world countries, you really kind of take it for granted. Like, hey, I get an upgrade every two years. But if you go to third world countries, like the fact that Android has 70% market share, it's not necessarily in the US, it's globally because it's a free operating system. You can buy phones for $50. And these $50 phones are computers where people can actually create movies, they can create stories, and they can create actual jobs. And I think that's incredibly uh, valuable. And you're seeing things like in Africa, where you're able to go in and trade, where you don't usually have currency, but you're able to trade digital kind of currency units, not, not just crypto, but like minutes on a phone, uh, SIM card cards, et cetera. Like all those things are possible because the smartphone exists. And I think that is kind of uh, what I'm most excited about in the future, as well as most recently in the past.
2: And they're able to have meetings on phones that can be yes. measured by Reed. So, Absolutely. all right. <laughs> it's been great having you today. We will all be rooting for Reed. And if people want to find out more about it, where do they go?
0: Uh, go to read.ai. super simple, Reed.ai, uh, sign up, create an account, try out, read dashboard for free. And there's, there's no strings attached, no credit card, just connect your email and then you're done.
2: Awesome.
1: Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the Product-Led Alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.